to Switchblade Sisters, where women get together to slice and dice our favorite action and genre films. I'm April Wolf. Every week, I invite a new female filmmaker on, a writer, director, actor, or producer, and we talk in depth about one of their fave genre films, perhaps one that influenced their own work in some strange way. Today, I'm really excited to have writer-comedian Megan Amram with me. Hi. Hi. Um, For those of you who are not familiar with Megan's work, please let me give you an introduction. Megan Amram is a native of Portland, Oregon. She was an early adapter of using Twitter to craft and hone jokes and received a fair bit of attention that helped her get some writing gigs. One of those first jobs had her writing for the 83rd Academy Awards. But the next year, she earned a spot in the writer's room of the Amy Poehler series Parks and Rec. After that show's successful run wrapped, Megan went on to Cruel Show, Children's Hospital, Transparent, and Silicon Valley, before the producers of Parks and Rec came calling for a new comedy series, The Good Place, starring Kristen Bell and Ted Danson. In 2018, she returned to write for another round of the Academy Awards and also worked on The Simpsons, but that year also marked one of Megan's most significant achievements, successfully lobbying herself into Emmy nominations for a short-form comedy series with her show, An Emmy for Megan. Megan has also written a book parodying the ways products are marketed and geared towards women called Science for Her. And though the Guinness Book of World Records refuses to recognize her for the achievement, Megan has also tweeted, This is the day Donald Trump finally became president every single day since May 2017, thereby ensuring that anyone who ever uttered that phrase in earnest would be sounding uh, really ridiculous. Yes, that kind of sums it up. Thank you. (laughs) That's your life. So, Megan, the movie that you chose to talk about today is... The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Yes, and to set the scene for anyone who's listening to this, which is everybody, yeah. I am draped in a blanket that is the original VHS cover of The Texas Chainsaw Massacre right now because I'm so obsessed with this movie. It is a beautiful blanket. Thank you. You really, I wish you could all see it. If you could get into this recording studio, you'd love it. But yeah, um, yeah I'm obsessed with this movie. I was so excited to come talk with you about it. And it's also very funny to think of how this has influenced my own work. I I've wanted never, to have. Yeah, I really... I, I now I'm like, I'm, I hadn't thought about it like that, but it it has, which I can go into. I mean, my chainsawing work mostly. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But also my comedy. A lot of chainsaw comedy. bears, but... Yeah, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> um, well, uh, can you give us a little explanation, though, and why this is one of your fave genre films? Yes, and also just a little background, because I clearly have worked in very silly comedies, and that is my primary profession, but I am obsessed with horror movies. Again, very excited to come on this podcast. Um, and... In general, uh, I would say Texas Chainsaw Massacre really represents my favorite things out of every horror movie. Um, My favorite genre of horror is usually supernatural, so this is a little uh, divergent from that. And I also have to say, the first time I ever saw this movie was on a plane, (laughs) which is so funny because it is so... It is a horrifying movie. It It is so much rawer than even most famous horror movies. Oh, yeah. And it's maddening, and it makes you feel like you're trapped. And when you're trapped in a plane, you're really trapped. I was watching it, like, years ago on a plane and have never been more embarrassed. I was just, like, I hope there's no children or even just immature adults (laughs) anywhere because this is scary. But, um, no, I picked this movie because it is so beautifully shot, um, because it represents 
like a true lack of regard for the human body, which I I think is a really uh, inspiring is not quite the right word, but a <laughs> theme that I find myself drawn to a lot. And it's also really funny. So I thought it would be kind of fun to talk about the humor in this movie. Um, oh, yeah. Because it makes it way more scarier when you're laughing at grandpa trying to... Oh, my God. Yeah. Gnaw a woman. <laughs> <laughs> well, for those of you who haven't seen The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, today's episode will obviously give you some spoilers, but that shouldn't stop you from listening before you watch, as always. My motto is that it's not what happens, but how it happens that makes a movie worth watching. Still, if you would like to pause and watch The Texas Chainsaw Massacre first, this is your chance. It's on Netflix right now. You can also rent it from your local video store. Please support local video stores and... Now that you're back, let's introduce the Texas Chainsaw Massacre with a quick synopsis. Written by Kim Henkel and Toby Hooper, and directed by Hooper for release in 1974, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre stars Marilyn Burns as Sally Hardesty, a young woman on a road trip with her brother Franklin and three friends, Jerry, Kirk, and Pam. They're in rural Texas, checking on Sally and Franklin's grandfather's grave. There have been reports of stolen corpses there. Subsequent investigation has revealed at least a dozen empty crypts, and it's feared more will turn up as the probe continues. Deputies report that in some instances, only parts of a corpse had been removed. The head, or in some cases, the extremities removed, the remainder of the corpse left intact. On the way back, they pick up a hitcher who freaks them out, cutting himself and Franklin before getting kicked out of the van. They run low on gas and stop at a gas station barbecue spot, whose owners plead with them to stay for a while until there's a gas refill. I got some good barbecue here. Why don't you fellas stick around here a while? The transport will be by in a little while. It's uh, in the middle of the 1970s kind of gas crisis. Uh, instead, they go out to some property Sally and Franklin's father owns, a dilapidated house. There, Kirk and Pam try to find a swimming hole, but they find an old home with a gas generator going instead. Kirk knocks on the door to see if they can buy some of their gas. When he goes inside, he's quickly knocked out by a man in a human skin mask and a butcher's apron. Pam follows Kirk inside the house, but she, too, is caught, and Leatherface hangs her on a meat hook while he dismembers Kirk. It's getting late, and Jerry goes out to find Kirk and Pam. Listen, I think I'll walk down to the creek before it gets too dark. How do I get there, Frank? Well, there's a trail down there between them two old sheds. Can I go, too? Uh, I think you better stay here. He also enters the house and wanders into the kitchen, where he hears a noise and opens a freezer to find Pam near death inside. Leatherface kills him, too, then looks in the front window trying to figure out where all these damn kids are coming from. Now it's dark. Sally and Franklin are bickering, and Sally's very freaked out. Franklin realizes Jerry took the van keys with him. Sally, they took the keys. We don't have any keys. They took the keys. Stop it! Sally goes on a mission to find them, and Franklin begs to come along. She pushes his wheelchair through dense bramble and rocky terrain, and suddenly Leatherface jumps out with a roaring chainsaw and cuts right through Franklin. Sally goes running and shrieking through the bramble in a tense chase scene. She comes upon the house and begs anyone inside for help, but finds an old corpse-like man upstairs. She's forced to jump out the second-story window when Leatherface comes roaring through the house again, She's chased all the way back to the gas station, where the man inside says he's going to help her. Take it easy. Take it easy. I'll get the truck. Take it easy. 
but he knocks her out and ties her up instead. He brings her back to the house, and Sally gets a look at the whole wretched family. Leatherface, his daddy, the hitcher brother, and corpse granddad. They sit down to dinner, and Sally can't stop shrieking, and then they decide that granddad's going to have to kill her. I've been thinking about letting Grandpa have some fun. You always said he's the best. He's the best, all right. Just let him so they bring out a wash basin and have Granddad try to knock Sally out, but Granddad's not getting the best swings in. Sally escapes and jumps out another window and takes off down the drive to the road with the Hitcher brother dancing behind her and Leatherface roaring with his chainsaw. In the road, the brother gets run over by a semi. Sally's able to flag down the semi driver. A Benny Hill type chase around the truck ensues with Sally, the driver, and Leatherface until a pickup truck come by, comes by and Sally jumps in in the nick of time laughing maniacally at her assailant's chainsaw dance of grief. Okay, so when Toby Hooper was dreaming this up, um, it was like 1972 to 73, he said, quote, I was in a department store around the holidays thinking, I just can't wait to get out of this department store. This, <laughs> this must have been in 1972 or 1973. There were thousands of people in there, and I was weaving through them to get out, and I found myself in the hardware department. I looked down, and there was a rack of chainsaws in front of me for sale. I said, if I start the saw, those people would just part they would get out of my way. Oh my God, that is so relatable. I've never heard that <laughs> and I cannot believe, I I can so viscerally understand that feeling. Yeah. Of like, yeah, like my life would be easier for five minutes if I just went full psycho. <laughs> it would then be much harder for the rest of my life. But uh, yeah, that's amazing. And um, it's, I, I don't want to di- diverge too much from your talking points Go for but it. um it you know as you're as you were running through the synopsis of it the thing that i i just in terms of how the movie lays itself out that i think is so amazing and i just rewatched it with people who'd never seen it which oh. is a really fun thing to yeah. do because the chainsaw doesn't come in until fairly late in the movie, a scary thing has already happened, which is that the hitchhikers picked up. I kind of find those scenes or that scene, I guess, scarier than Leatherface almost because you were like, this definitely could happen to me today mm-hmm. is I could just run in to someone that I don't quite know how to handle, that you don't really know what his motives are. Yeah. Um, he cuts his hand in front of them, which I find really creepy. Uh but so you have this tension building and building and building. And then when it finally is released, which is Leatherface smashing a man in the head and killing him immediately. Quick. Yeah. Not uh, drawn out. It is, to me, like the biggest punchline, if you could call it that, of like any horror movie. I am mm-hmm. so obsessed with the scene where you first see Leatherface. I watch it a lot. Just in terms of, I think, master, masterful filmmaking, the door looks amazing. The like set design looks amazing. It is so just presented as it is, which is someone being killed immediately in front of you. Mm-hmm. And then the door slams shut. And I think it's one of the most amazing scenes of any movie. 
Well, Hooper himself described the film as a comedy. Yeah. And it confounded people. It confounded critics. But it was very much a comedy. Uh, yeah. The writer Jason Zinneman said, quote, Mr. Hooper baffled many by describing his movie as a comedy. But you can detect its sense of humor in the way the killers come off as fools quibbling in a mundane family comedy, a sensibility that became far more overt in his sequel and an entertaining farce that disappointed fans expecting something as terrifying as the original. I, I have seen the sequel and it is like, a fun addition to the canon, I guess, of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It is not my favorite movie, but I do like that it that that is the direction it went rather than just like another family ran into Leatherface yeah. in the same exact way. Um, but yeah, it's and, and going back to what I was saying about you know, has this influence, has this comedy, which I totally agree. It's like the darkest comedy I've ever seen. I think that something I'm really obsessed with in my own comedic work is like how dumb the human body is. Mm -hmm. And that's the that's the very silly version of uh, that people are just meat, which is what this movie to me is about. I think you, <laughs> even just going back to your Twitter avatar, yeah, for like one thing where it's just like it's your face and the skin is like wrapped and it's like it's it's meat. Your your face skin is like oh my god, meat. I've never put this together, but my fa my avatar, which is a real picture of me, just looking very ugly and dumb, and I have a ton of makeup on in it. Uh, it is so similar to Leatherface wearing the makeup. It's, I'm having a real epiphany moment right now. It's pretty Leatherface, oh dude. <laughs> but yeah, and it's so I write for The Good Place, a show that has, you know, is very sweet and tonally not yeah. very Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Um, it's a little bit of a supernatural or like a sci fi show. And one of the characters who is not human, uh, tends to describe how dumb he thinks human bodies are because he mm -hmm. has to live in one. And he, I wrote a joke for Michael, played by Ted Danson, that is something along the lines of, like, humans are st so stupid, they're just goo and juice. And if you take all the juice out, they're dead. <laughs> and that, to me, is is exactly the absurdity of life. But it also is why when I see... A movie that very explicitly compares, like, young people, I guess. And mm -hmm. we can also talk about, you know, the young female body. But, like, that compares young people to pigs and cows who are getting slaughtered. Yeah. Um, I find it, like, it just hits this visceral point in my brain where I just immediately get it. But that's—and this is something that people have talked a lot about with this movie— which is it the Leatherface and his family uh, used to all work at a slaughterhouse. That's how they're introduced is mm -hmm. the the group of young people are driving past a slaughterhouse when they pick up the hitchhiker. Um, and he talks about how they used to kill cows with a mallet and now they use an air gun and it's taken all the art out of it. And yeah. people lost their jobs because of it. And then they end up killing all these people later how it is like it brings up the themes of meat eating and a lot of people say they became vegetarians after watching this I mean, Tober movie Hooper, he was vegetarian for a few yeah. years after this because he couldn't stomach it i've stopped eating red meat for a variety of reasons but also 
it's not not because of the things in this movie. It's not mm-hmm. like I watched this movie and immediately was like, no way. Yeah, it's but like it, more effective than forks over knives for you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this is like original Okja for people. <laughs> but um, it is when I, I think it's a movie that makes you confront what it means to kill something. So if you, you know, choose to continue eating meat, that's totally fine. But this is a movie that's like, this is how you got it. Mm-hmm. Someone had to kill a cow, either in a very old school, really barbaric way, or in what is, in some ways, an even grosser way, which is super mass produced, just killing a million cows all at once. Yeah, it's like, how would you feel if you're in that position? And I think it's totally fine if you take that journey and you're like, okay, I'm still going to eat meat. But also, it is a movie that makes you feel that way. Well, that's also something that you're doing in The Good Place, too, because you're asking really difficult moral questions that aren't necessarily things that you have an answer for. But you do have to show a little bit in even like a comic way of like, well, this is what happens. Yeah, totally, totally. And we talk about that a lot in the writer's room, which is... uh, and, And to me, it's something I took away from working on The Good Place, which is you should be mindful of every moral choice you make and that doesn't mean you always make the right choice and Mm -hmm. sometimes you actively don't want to make the quote-unquote right choice but it does help you realize uh that you are making those choices Mm -hmm. every time you do something and i think that it's really easy to go on autopilot in the world in general um and so it's nice to be confronted by terrible scary things (laughs) that's how I feel about horror movies in general like I'm a very neurotic nervous person but horror movies soothe me a little bit because I'm like I'm looking at the bad thing it's not worse than I imagined it just is right there it's okay Uh, we're going to take a quick break when we come back we're going to talk a little bit more about finding inspiration um, for your work and uh, a little bit about Edwin Neal and some of the actors in this movie so we'll be right back Friendly Fire is a podcast about war movies, but it's so much more than that. It's history. It was just supposed to be another assignment. It's comedy. Under no circumstances are you to engage the enemy. It's cinema studies. It's a hell of a combination. So subscribe and download Friendly Fire on your podcatcher of choice. Or at MaximumFun.org. And also come see us at San Francisco Sketchfest on January 16th. You can get tickets at sfsketchfest.com. accomplished. Welcome back to Switchblade Sisters. I'm April Wolf, and I'm joined today by Megan Amram, and we're talking about the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Uh, I wanted to read another quote about something that had inspired Toby Hooper when making this. Uh, Quote, I'd been working on this idea of young people, college students, in isolation. We were going through a gasoline shortage in the country at the time. People had to queue up in their automobiles at gas stations, sometimes for miles. There was gas rationing. And I was hearing a lot of lies on television. Politically, the times were interesting. They were kind of amplified. So the idea came to me in the car of how to pull all these elements together. It came really quickly. The whole configuration of the characters and the loop, the way the story loops in itself, all came to me. And it's a, it's an interesting quote 
first he's saying that he's inspired by these political times. He's driving in his car and he's literally saying, as he clarifies later on, that as he's driving in his car, the entire story came to him. The entire, all the characters, everything, he's driving along, seeing these lines, and he wrote it essentially in his head in the car. Um, I, first of all, as a writer, am so in awe of stories like that, uh, that are just from truly like a very emotional place like mm-hmm. that's that that you just said about you know gas rationing but also him wanting to escape from a crowded store with a chainsaw that to me is where really great stories come from which is i felt really strongly about this thing how can i turn that into a story mm-hmm. and my job as a comedy writer but also on the sitcoms i've specifically written for i i feel like sometimes ends up being a little bit of logic puzzles and i I try to read about directors and writers like Toby Hooper to inspire me to just get in touch with what makes mm-hmm. you feel really bad, like at the time it's happening. Um, but you can see in the movie how there are bad things in every single setting and every single moment, even if it's not the actual horror scenes. Mm-hmm. Like, it already is gross and scary when they're driving in that van. Yeah. And by which I mean, it's dirty. It's the I love the way this movie is shot because it is so yellow and you can you viscerally know the feeling of the movie before anyone says anything. Mm -hmm. The camera is always really low and uh, is often in the grass. And obviously, there's a very iconic shot of you know, a girl in cutoff shorts that are like super tiny and you are just looking up at her butt. Mm-hmm. I love that. And I'm sure this is a much longer conversation. My feeling mostly about I, I it's hard to generalize, but like that type of objectification in a movie like this, I'm like, she is meat. That is what the movie's about. Staring up at her butt is just going along with the theme that she's nothing but a body. Yeah. Really. But the DP of this film is Daniel Pearl, and it was his first feature, I believe. Um, him and Tube, Toby Hooper were doing commercial stuff before this, mm-hmm. and then, you know, they, they went on to make this feature. Um, but he said, quote, After one week of shooting, we were moving too slow, and the producers shut us down. We were, we're going to shut you down for a week, they said. You have to have a shot list prepared so you know what you're going to do, <laughs> be doing every scene, and it becomes finite. It's the conflict between the art and the business. Toby made a shot list. We came back the following Monday. I began to set up the first shot on the list. Toby arrived a half an hour later and changed it all. Then we went through the day as we had before without a shot list. Second day, Toby shows up and changes it again. He says, oh, I forgot to tell you, we're not shooting that shot list. I just had to write something down. I need to be in the mood and the environment and see how it all happens for me. And... That was one of the thing. One of the things where the producers came in when they were doing that shot of um, Pam, who was walking into yeah. the house, and they had thought fully that that he was doing a shot list. And they came up and they were like, "What the fuck are you doing?" Because, um, what. Daniel Pearl had suggested was just like, you know what? I think that if I was on this dolly, I would be low enough where I could like swing through. Like he was just there imagining it. And then Toby was like, yeah, set it up. And apparently they said, quote, you cannot shoot the shot. You have to stick to the shot list. We forbid it right now. And then Toby Hooper said, I'm the director and he's the DP and you can fire us, but we're shooting this shot. I'm like more scared of that story than I am of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre (laughs) at the idea that they would not have gotten those shots. I mean, that is... Is, it's so funny to hear 
almost any story from a movie shoot where you're like, oh, my God, it was so tenuous that they made the movie they did. Yeah. And as far as I understand, it also was a low budget shoot. And like, Very. I mean, obviously there was budgeting issues and you're just like, this is always my feeling, which is the fact that anything turns out good ever is truly a miracle. Mm-hmm. But I am uh, also very in awe of directors like Toby Hooper. I've, you know, not heard him speak in person, but have R- seen R.I.P. R-I-P. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, have listened to him talk. And it's like that that ability to be in the moment and just look at the house you have, the set you have, and and say, like, I think this kind of shot would make this kind of feeling Mm -hmm. is really an amazing talent. Um, But, yeah, there's so many. And it's also, I wanted to add to this classic shot of Pam. There's also a shot of, I don't remember if it's Jerry or Kent, I guess his name is. Kirk. Kirk, that's it. Um, But there is also... This like low angle shot of I think it is Kirk walking towards the house when he like all the people just sort of start walking towards the house Mm -hmm. as if they're flies about to go into a spider's web or as they're like cows, like entering the weird. Exactly. And I was like, I I don't know what the uh, intention that they set out to do. But to me, I see at I see both a woman walking being objectified by the camera and also a man walking into the house being objectified by the camera and to me what i take from that is it's for everyone (laughs) like this is a trap and a slaughterhouse for everyone who's Mm -hmm. going towards it and i found that to be really compelling well also like it's almost like gender has no meaning in this because there's all meat and you see that when like leatherface is like well now he's female now now he's not like it's just not about that i think that's such an important part of this movie and i (laughs) hate to even bring it up but it's also like the people who go on this podcast people listening to this it is a there's a gendered look at horror I as a woman watching every horror movie there is so much sexual violence in horror movies which I don't think necessarily means that it's bad that can be discussing what sexual violence is Mm -hmm. this movie does not feel sexual to me it it in some ways removes the body from the sexual if that makes sense and that is again Something that really surprises me, like they capture Sally and they are torturing her like it's horrifying, but it is just about hurting her. It's not about like sexual torture, Mm -hmm. which I think is an important distinction because, again, horror movies often with female main characters get into uh, a lot of like sexual violence. You know, but, you're you're talking about her performance too, and I, I think that we should bring up you know how Chilby Hooper approached that with his actors because it's kind of abuse. Um, <laughs> he said, "Quote: This is about him doing an immersive set. Mm-hmm. It's from the working conditions I established, like separating mm-hmm. the actors. We wouldn't let Franklin, Sally's brother, played by Paul Partain, have lunch with the other actors, and we wouldn't let him bathe. Oh. There were all these little techniques and devices that I found to create some kind of sensory impulse to help get to the truth. It was also the repetition of scenes. 
And then he talks about the window. For instance, when Sally breaks through the door of the service station, she had to do that 17 times. And I'm not sure that we had knee pads or could afford them. But Marilyn was totally into it. She gave it everything. And in a traditional film, no one would jump through a glass window twice in the same movie. It just wasn't done because of some convention. I wanted to be outrageous and break the rules and also involve you and make those characters real for you. I... I have strong feelings about directors, especially like auteurs uh, running their sets like this. Mm -hmm. And as a film dork growing up, idolizing these sorts of people like Stanley Kubrick and William Friedkin, whatever. I think I, when I was younger, was like, oh, that makes you a good director. That means that you got the performance out of, I mean, clearly he got the performance out of his cast for Texas, Toby Hooper did for Texas Chainsaw Massacre. He got them to take it seriously, you know, like you you can see the tonal friction of them taking things really seriously. And and I I think that is why the movie feels so visceral. That being said, I also, again, as a woman working in the industry, have a very like knee-jerk reaction to the, the fact that, well, if you fostered a sense of safety and communication do you also get that sort of performance out of people and we can't go back and remake texas chainsaw massacre with knee pads but it frustrates me because it sets the bar to be like you have to really feel pain to be able to portray pain and it's like you hear about william friedkin pulling a gun on people on set or whatever and it's like yes you got these crazy like Linda Blair broke her back or whatever in The Exorcist, but could you have made as good of a movie if she hadn't? I want to think you could have. Oh, yeah. I want to think that you just try something else as a director to get yes, into the exactly. space. And so it is, it, it's like there's a lot of these types of stories. And I can tell you in Texas Chainsaw Massacre, you can see that they all feel horrible. Like, I do believe that that radiates out of the movie, that there is, yeah, that they're feeling dirty and tired and yeah. scared or whatever. Uh, we're going to take another quick break. When we come back, we'll get uh, um, into some of the moral ambiguity of Leatherface and his character and also some of the more of the comedy of the family and the relative bloodlessness of this movie. Uh, we'll be right back. Hi, I'm Allie Gertz. And I'm Julia Prescott. And we host Round Springfield. Round Springfield is a new Simpsons podcast that is Simpsons adjacent. Mm -hmm. Um, In its topic, we talk to Simpsons writers, directors, voiceover actors, you name it, about non-Simpsons things that they've done. Because, surprise, they're all extremely talented. Absolutely. For example, David X. Cohen worked on The Simpsons, but then created a little show called Futurama. Mm -hmm. That's our very first episode. So tune in for stuff like that with Yardley Smith, with Tim Long, with different writers and voice actors. It's going to be so much fun. And we are every other week on MaximumFun.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Switchblade Sisters. I'm April Wolf, and I'm joined today by Megan Amram, and we're talking about the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. 
Um, so I wanted to talk a little bit about Leatherface. Um, this is another quote from uh, Toby Hooper. He said, what Leatherface does uh, scares the hell out of him, actually. And by the time he's killed Jerry, played by Alan Danziger, he knows he's in trouble. Not trouble with the law so much as trouble with his older brother. There's a scene after he hits Jerry and throws Pam back into the freezer where he runs to the window. He sits down and looks out the window and you can see what's going through his mind. Where do they keep coming from? And am I in deep, deep trouble? You know, there's an interview with Gunnar, uh, Gunnar who played... Um, uh, Leatherface yeah. uh, on television where he talks about the chainsaw dance that he does at the end of the film. He says that what was going through his mind during that dance is that it was his last chance to kill me. So that's how worked up he was. It's it's so crazy the roller coaster you go on with Leatherface as a character or at least that I do. Oh, yeah. Which is that when you first see him, he is taking up an entire doorway. He's a huge man mm-hmm. wearing skin and murder someone immediately and you're like this is the scariest most evil person Mm -hmm. then you get to know that there he doesn't really talk um he you know has his own sorts of verbalizing he clearly is like the baby of the family if that's fair to say Mm -hmm. and yeah and as as you said he really cares about uh, his family being proud of him. Yeah. And this is where, again, the comedy really comes into play to me, that you're like, oh, my God, how have you made us feel even 0.5% sympathy for Leatherface? Yeah. Like the way that his family all bullies him? Uh, I don't think many directors would have had a scene of their main villain just sit and ponder <laughs> things and look out the window. It, but yeah. that it was like... <laughs> But that is a revelational scene where you're like, you kind of see that it's taking a toll on him. Yes. And that's that's a twist. And I think, that's not what I was expecting. Totally. And I think part of the twist also is you it is implied that Leatherface is not like fully aware even of the of what he's doing. Like he knows he's killing something, but it seems to be that he's trying to like do his family proud that's his motiv- scarier to me that, oh my god it is so that much is a scarier. motivation of just like you're not you're not evil there's a motivation of trying to make someone feel that or m- trying to feel like a whole person and you you have to validate that yes <laughs> you know? and it's also like if i were sally locked up you can't yeah you can't reason with leatherface if he's doing this for his own reasons that you can't empathize with yeah like you couldn't talk him down. You're just like, oh, no, this is some this is other it. yeah, world. The the thing with Marilyn Burns, too, is what, something that we should we should mention, you know, going back to also Toby Hooper working with his actors. One of the reasons why she was insane during that house scene is because there's a lot of things going on for her personally, Marilyn Burns, the actor, um, as this is going. Um, she, you know, she heard a few years ago, for instance, that, you know, they cut her finger so that grandpa can suck on her on her blood. Oh. Here's the deal. That was supposed to be fake blood and there was supposed to be tape on the knife. Yeah. And oh, they didn't do that. And she was told it was an accident and they just need to use that. Oh. But the thing is that they would lied to her. I hate that. And I did not know that. I mean, it doesn't surprise me, but no. I truly hate that. Um, also, and here's here's another really insane thing that happened um, because 
Okay, so the family, this is Toby Hooper, this family was into death art, it was a hobby, and we needed animals. The city pound had done their due for the month, and they came out with a dump truck about 20 meters from the house and dumped about 500 pounds of dead animals out front. I came out and looked at it and realized it was over the line, that a domestic animal is like a child, so seeing all those dead cats and uh, dogs would ruin the movie. So I said, get rid of these. And then I went back inside the house and was shooting. Someone got five gallons of gasoline, poured it over all those dead animals, and set fire to them. I guess they were thinking that they were going to disappear or go up into ashes. The house was bad <gasps> enough. Hold on. The house was bad enough with the bones cooking, and I'll, I'll explain that, and everyone throwing up. But then all of this smoke from the burning fur and flesh started coming in through the house. That's when everyone really started losing it. Those Because the skeletons, it's cheaper for them to buy real skeletons from India, but yeah. that also means that they're not co- cleaned com- completely. Right. So the skeleton's meat was cooking. So there was like corpse meat cooking I mean, in it the looks heat. real. That's this... It, it's like... A tr- it, this is truly a nightmare. And yeah. again, I'm very conflicted because you're like, okay, so this whole movie was imbued with like real terror mm-hmm. and real death. And it made something that I really love. That being said, I think that is like such an irresponsible way of of trying to, I mean, obviously that story makes it sound like it possibly was a real miscalculation yeah but um i mean also the mallet that they were using on her with grandpa like it's a real mallet it had foam around it but it was hard enough that it hurt her yeah very badly and so she was like she was freaked out yeah she was in character she freaked out that you can tell and it is something that to this day is a very big topic of conversation in the industry which is are you treating, let's say, actresses as a commodity or an object to get your art? Or are you treating them like a person yeah. who's doing their job? Meter people. What are they? Yeah. Uh, in this movie, maybe a little bit of meat. Toby Hooper said, you know, he admitted that he lost quite a few friends through making this movie. And it took uh, like a decade or Worth more. It. And... Uh, <laughs> Friends are overrated. No, <laughs> you lost them because yeah, they're dead. Friends, <laughs> what the fuck? Um, I'm, you know, I'm curious. We were talking about, you know, Leatherface and these characters that you kind of feel sympathy for. I mean, in your own work, are you thinking about like if you have to write a bad character, the characters that you write in The Good Place, for instance, or that you were writing in Parks and Rec, there are clear villains, right? Right. Even though it's comedy, there's clear villains. Yeah. But there's also a kind of um, having to develop sympathy for them. And I was wondering if you could talk about that kind of process for any of these people that you've done. Yeah. It's funny because the shows that I've mostly worked on, namely The Good Place and Parks and Rec, are like really moral shows. The Good Place is literally about morality and we talk about philosophy and and the show if it's about anything is what it means to be a good person Mm -hmm. so a lot of the bad characters on that show some of whom are literal demons from hell Mm -hmm. and some of whom are just like humans who are mostly thoughtless they're not super villains um they tend to have arcs in which they learn that they've done things wrong Mm -hmm. it doesn't mean that they are perfect going forward but it's about being sort of revelatory about your own morality Mm -hmm. um and then parks and rec too the even someone like 
Jeremy Jam, who is a evil-ish character on the show. Yeah, he we show him having some real insecurity, and he sort of tries to be friends with Amy Poehler's character. Like, there's always these moments of humanity. And is that so? That's a conscious thing. Is there like a yes. formula for you guys when you're developing this, or you know, it, the good place uh, is very much a show that is supposed to make you feel good, like you at home and a lot of families watch the show. It's really funny talking about The Good Place while having been in Texas Chainsaw Land in my head. Yeah. Um, Same so, thing. Yeah, and so... You can't escape. It's very overt that it's like, do you feel like a bad person? Do you think someone at your job or school, do you think they're a bad person? They might not always be a bad person. Mm-hmm. So that is explicitly what we are trying to do on... At least those two shows. I mean, uh, are you testing things of just like making sure that what you're writing is like this is going to make people feel good, you know, <laughs> or I think that we try. And again, I'll just talk mostly about The Good Place because it's very like of a moment. I think we are not trying to sugarcoat anything. Um, so like we wouldn't want the show to be treacly or whatever. Yeah. We want it to be uh, realistic so there's a character this season named Brent who <laughs> is sort of about toxic masculinity and privilege. He's a way in which to talk about privilege and white male privilege and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're not we we have never I don't want to like give talk too much about this season of the show but like he is a pretty bad dude like he says things that are racist and sexist and he's not getting he's not like having an epiphany that oh my god i've lived my life in a completely wrong way and i'm a villain Mm -hmm. he might learn you know one tiny step of how to be a little better but i think it would be disingenuous to our audience and to the world right now to pretend like everyone can get better all the time Mm -hmm. um (laughs) but it's funny because like me personally so those are shows i write with other people and i sometimes have that kind of sensibility but i personally am really drawn to stuff that is like so unrelentingly is that relentlessly (laughs) i'm a writer relentlessly (laughs) dark and cynical and an emmy for megan an emmy for megan which is just so dark no <laughs> it is pretty i mean you could say it's cynical that i made a web series in order to win an emmy um but uh yeah so so the things that i find very exciting when i'm watching them mm-hmm. are things that are pretty sadistic and i also have a lot of feelings of you can be a really good person and really like watching dark, mean stuff. Well, it's like exercising those things. Exactly. I've had this, like, people who Not aren't... exercise, but exorcising. Yeah, exorcising. Yeah. 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 Um, I think people who aren't horror movie people uh, sometimes don't understand. I mean, clearly they don't like it. So yeah. there's not, <laughs> there's not, like, a reason for them to understand it. But I think of myself as a like kind person who who cares about treating people really uh fairly and kindly and i like learning about other people that being said i also love movies where 
the human body is brutalized. And I'm like, those are two different things. One is a fantasy world in which I'm watching stuff that I would never do in real life. Mm -hmm. And it, as you said, is like a cathartic way to live out the worst versions of human life and then to turn off your movie and be like okay now i'm gonna go to bed in my nice little yeah i'm gonna go to bed. trader yeah. joe's yeah. and get some cookies and everything's yeah. gonna be fine I get it. <laughs> that's a great place for us to wrap up thank yeah. you so much for coming to talk with the with me today about so the fun. texas chainsaw this was just massacre. a fun little jaunt <laughs> thank you <laughs> and um is there anything that we can tell uh listeners to to watch of yours i uh, just please watch the last season of the good place Aaron. Thursday nights on NBC and imagine me watching the Texas Chainsaw Massacre while you're watching The Good Place. Right. Oh, and they can also maybe go online and watch an Emmy for Megan, right? Yeah, go to an emmyformegan.com and watch both seasons and just be so angry on my behalf that I didn't win one. Next year? I mean, it better. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Thank you for listening to Switchblade Sisters. If you like what you're hearing, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. If you do, I'll read it on air. The other Tim Lynch says, as a born-again screenwriter, Switchblade Sisters is the welcoming crash course in the filmmaker's perspective I need. April's work has introduced me to so many intelligent women filmmakers, and I love learning from all their work as well. Thanks. So thank you, the other Tim Lynch. If you want to let us know what you think of the show, you can tweet at us at SwitchbladePod or email us at SwitchbladeSisters at MaximumFun.org. And please check out our Facebook group. That's Facebook.com slash groups slash SwitchbladeSisters. Our producer is Casey O'Brien. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher, and this is a production of MaximumFun.org. Sally, they took the keys. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.